welcome to the Working Together podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how, inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from folks who've made interesting things happen. Their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, and the actionable advice that they have to share. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I do. In this episode, I talk with Ann Cooper, retired superintendent of School District Number 19 in Revelstoke, British Columbia, Canada. Our conversation was recorded in August. Anne has been an instrumental force in the establishment of Revelstoke as the most successful school district in the province of BC, and she continues to strive to make Revelstoke a truly family-friendly city. During our talk, we explored Anne's experience in her past role as superintendent, where Anne used her leadership to encourage cross-collaboration amongst diverse organizations and levels of government to transform Revelstoke's early years community programming. We started the interview talking about how the internet impacted schools in rural BC in the late 1980s, and I asked Anne to tell me her story. You know, I remember when, literally, like this is really dating myself, but I remember when in the school district in Fort Nelson, um, our tech coordinator, you know, said, you know, there's there's this thing called the internet, and it's really quite kind of interesting, and maybe we should consider, you know, using it, you know, with kids in the library and that. And so, you know, we had Archie and Veronica and Turbo Gopher, and uh, and then the very first iteration of Mozilla, I guess it was. And I remember every day, what was a fascination for me was I'd go home and we'd have supper. And then my task every day was I had a little feed of all the new websites that were developed. And initially there were four a day and there were 10 a day. And I, and I was, I stuck with it at about 120 a day. Like, and I would look at every new website, you know, cause wow. they, they, they were announced. Right. And at 120 day a day, it was about four or five days, maybe maybe ten days after it was at the hundred level, and then there were like six hundred a day, and then a thousand a day, and and well, then of course I you know wasn't kind of spending you know ten hours yeah. a night looking at every new website, um, but it was easy then to really see what things were happening. You know, and it, and it was really easy, in my view, to be current. And I was, mm-hmm. I thought I was really, really current. I mean, if you're if you're looking at every new website, yeah. and you know, and and trying it out and seeing what NASA, you know, can do for you, you know, yeah. uh, you know, pre Google Earth, you were really kind of cutting edge. But now there's just so much, yeah. like. Like you have to kind of, you know, hear from somebody like you. There's this thing called blockchain that you don't really know about. And then you put it on a little list and then you spend a little time on it. And then, you you know, you'll 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 know a little more because you can't you can't navigate the newness yourself. It's just there's just it's beyond imagination, isn't it? How much creativity there is now using technology. That's a great story. And that's uh, that's exactly I think how a lot of people feel this this overwhelm with information. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, wow. So that must have been some interesting uh, uh, newsletter that you would get all the time that would show each new yeah. website. They probably oh. gave up at some point, I'm guessing. 
they, they must have, I'm sure. Um, and, you know, we're on, we were on a dial-in modem, so you'd go home. You know, uh, I think it was a 28-bit modem or whatever it was called. You'd go home, and then you'd do that dial-in, and it would handshake. And, like, about six minutes after you started dialing in, you'd get a connection, and you'd be thrilled. And then, of course, there was very little graphics. But, mm-hmm. um, like, it would just take you so long mm-hmm. to, boot, to boot up a website. You'd have to be really patient, you know. But I'm thinking, like, I remember going, after about a couple of weeks of kind of looking at this thing, I remember going back and meeting with people in the district that were really interested in this thing and saying, like, this is a real wow. And we should, you know, we well, we had Internet access in the labs, obviously, um, for email, basically. Uh, but we, we need to be making this available, you know, to the kids and, uh, you know, for research purposes, because this is cutting edge. And I remember saying, boy, at some point, this is going to replace textbooks, you know. And, like, people looked at me like, what are you talking about? You know, <laughs> replace a textbook, you know. <laughs> you're Black, bl- yeah, you're joking. But, you know, but like in... You know, in 88, 89, and 90, uh, people really didn't have a vision as to how you could get information, like, wirelessly over the air and and uh, and what was at your fingertips, you know, as, as far as, um, uh, uh, well, reference materials, I, I would call it. You know, I mean, why would you want an encyclopedia when you could look up, you know, your ailment on WebMD or, you know, you could go to the Mayo Clinic or John Hopkins or, or wherever. Like, you, why why would you ever use a, an encyclopedia again? So this is, I mean, this is really telling, I think, this story that you're telling about um, about how advanced you guys were in your in your school district. This was back in 88, 89, you were saying? Yeah, so that was in Fort Nelson in 88, 89, and I was there uh, a decade. And, uh, and it, you know, and it's, it's even to this day, uh, like, a, it's a very high-performing school district. Uh, mm-hmm. Probably my, my good friend is the superintendent there, Diana Samchuk. She's been there over 30 years. She started her career, almost started her career there um, uh, within two years. And uh, they have the highest Aboriginal graduation rate in the province. They have the – either her or I have the highest uh, – reading rates in grades four and seven and ten in the province and these are both small little districts where basically i think people have figured out that if you if you do work together and i'm not just using that term because that's your blog um but if you do work together uh like a small little school district can accomplish you know a terrific you know amount and revelstoke it does enjoy the highest dogwood achievement uh, dogwood uh, graduation rates in the province. We are the least vulnerable community, uh, uh, you know, from uh, UBC's perspective, the Human Early Learning Partnerships, you know, EDI um, uh, uh, data, we're, we're, and we're the least vulnerable um, um, community, uh, really, that they measure, uh, all, like all over Canada, North America, and and and, and basically the the world, and that isn't. That isn't because we just have children who have no needs and we're just lucky because if we do nothing, you know, we're going to be a success. You know, we have, we have, you know, lots of challenges, but we figured out as a, like as an early learning community, how, how is it that we will 
you know, work together and do what needs to be done to support families. And you used a term, many hands make light work. And, you know, I've done lots of presentations, you know, with my colleagues in early learning, you know, pretty much all over. And, you know, we have a slide that literally is many hands make light work. And, and you shouldn't be trying to do early learning, you know, alone. So you should, you know, the child care, you know, society shouldn't be trying to do it alone. The school district shouldn't be trying to do it alone. The agencies that get grants for, you know, for programs and services, you know, because you're just going to duplicate and you're going to have lots of people fall through the fall through the cracks. And that's what we've managed to avoid in Revelstoke is by meeting regularly, being very knowledgeable about our programs, being mindful of, of of the surveying that we do where people are telling us what's missing and why they can't get to a program and mm. what would make a program better and by responding to what the people you're trying to serve are telling you uh, then we've managed to cobble together with very limited funding as everyone has like a really really rich source of services and programs that support early learning and uh, uh, and early uh, literacy in our community and that's that just is a huge resource to the school district because oh maybe years ago I don't know I've been retired now three years so I would say six years before I retired when when things were really clicking and working and we were making changes and it was noticeable I would often say and I still do is that there was a point you know within a year period where I could honestly say as the superintendent that we have effectively changed the face of kindergarten children in our community so no longer were we having five and six uh, let's say we had a, let's say we had 90 kindergarten students uh, in essentially five classes let's say well we would we would be engaging five or six educational assistants uh, you know QP support staff to work with classroom teachers in those kindergarten settings because of children who are really struggling emotionally or socially uh, and in some cases uh, you know developmentally particularly around language development so every year you know we'd you know put out a posting and we, you know we'd have uh, you know we'd place five or six educational assistants in our kindergarten classes so that a kindergarten teacher could kind of survive, you know, two or three children that were really presenting, you know, with very, very weak skills. And um, within a space of time, not very long, maybe, maybe two years, uh, what we found is we were starting to serve the kids that were really uh, present that would have been presenting as a real challenge in a kindergarten class. We were starting to serve them quite comprehensively when they were aged two, two three, and four uh, as a community, and then when they came to school, they didn't have those challenges. So um, we we had children who, without much support, certainly the degree that we had, mm -hmm. uh, coping very well in kindergarten classrooms and kindergarten teachers coping extremely well with the cohort that they were given. And then we provided those resources elsewhere in the system um, really to kind of tackle the issue of having every child leave grade three reading at grade level. And this district still has now for about nine consecutive years. Oh, anywhere between 92 and 96% of its children reading at grade level at the end of grade three. And that's all kids in. So, you know, that includes, you know, Down syndrome child that won't be reading at grade level. It includes, you know, children with, you know, really, uh, really severe, you know, mental challenges that won't probably ever read. So if you, so the, so the 96% of your kids, all of them, uh, really represent very close to, uh, oh, 99% 
of your kids that can read, mm-hmm. you know, save for some kind of an organic issue. Yeah. Well, then, well, then that changes the face of the of the kids that you send on to grades four and seven. Mm. You know, so once you've done that, then you don't have all those resources at primary so much uh, helping kids read because they're becoming behavior problems because they're, you know, you're a boy in grade three and you can't read yet. Well, you're going to be probably, well, no, I shouldn't say probably, you could be a behavioral challenge because what else are you going to do in class? Um, you know, so then we just kind of tackled, okay, well, let's have our kids leave grade seven reading fluently. They all could read, but a lot of them are very slow. And if you're a slow reader, you're still going to have lots of issues in, in high school. So then we had a real campaign and a, and a, and a plan uh, working grades four to seven so that kids would leave grade seven reading uh, fluently. And we were just as successful as that as we were at the grade three level. And so then we really knew we'd change the school district because essentially the kids that we were sending to the high school, which was where where we started with, you know, we started with a high school staff saying to us, we can't have a third of our kids in grade eight as struggling readers, you know, and graduate these kids, you know, within a five-year time period mm-hmm. or maybe even at all. So, you know, so our graduation rate went from 1999 at 64% to, uh, I believe the year I retired, it was 94. So we increased the graduation rate like 30 30 points. Well, you think about a grad class of, you know, let's say 100 kids, it would be a little more in, in pre- earlier years, and it's a little less now. But a grad class of, of 100 kids, 30 points are 30 kids who have graduated that otherwise wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Like, it, like it's it's phenomenal for uh, for the, for your for your commitment to children to have 30 kids every year graduate that otherwise weren't. And like so, it's, like, it's huge. Is, yeah, this is huge. And this is kind of why, um, you know, why I heard through the grapevine that I, I needed to interview you and talk with you about the work that you've done. Um, because, you know, f- first of all, so many things are going on in, in what you just said. Uh, just the power of community coming together and, and yes, working together yes. is key. Um, and and another another piece that you Have, mentioned is, is Stefan having an unrealistic goal because when we mm. set our goal with our teachers uh, and support staff, you know, we had a literacy committee and we met, and we said, well, look, we should be able to do better than this. This is pretty. This is this is this is pretty uh, tragic. These circumstances that we're in, you know, forty percent of our kids not reading, you know, by the end of grade three, and I said, why can't ninety percent of our kids read? And, you know, people people said, oh, that's too high, and I said, well, if we don't set the bar there, where are we going to set it? You know, mm-hmm. are we going to just set it at 80 and have 10 more, 10 kids lose out? Uh, let's, let's try for an idea and see how we do. And then, you know, we went from about uh, 70 to, oh, 80 in the eighties in a relatively short period of time with some really significant intervention, one-on-one intervention with kids at every grade level, grades one, two, and three. And once we got into the eighties, it, it clicked on folks well, we can easily get 90, and if we, mm-hmm. and why can't we do 95? You know, so I think, I think sometimes you have to set the bar high enough that people take a deep breath and maybe think you're not going to achieve it. But as you start moving towards that goal and having some success, mm-hmm. well, then the bar is high enough where it actually matters. Yeah. You know, if your bars, if your bar is too low, you can say you've met your goal. But you still haven't done anything phenomenal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of nice, I think, when you work with children, that you're doing things that are phenomenal for children. You know, they're they're beyond the expected. You're doing more than the minimum. You're doing more than what's easy, you know. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I really like, I mean, and what you're saying there encapsulates the the vision statement that I read in, in some of the materials that I found online. Yeah. So Revelstoke's yeah. early childhood development vision statement that Revelstoke yes. envisions a caring community that acknowledges, values, and supports the shared responsibility of investing in young children so that they may live, learn, play, and dream. I thought that yes. was interesting. In yes. safe and healthy surroundings. And so... Maybe t- tell me a little bit more about this this story here that happened that kind of led to that vision statement. And uh, here's a question, actually: Did you guys target high school and say we're gonna we're gonna do something about high school? And then as you were doing that, you learned okay, maybe we needed to focus in the early years a bit more. I think there were there were two parallel uh, initiatives back in 2002. As a community, we we got together when we realized that there were districts that were going to pilot this thing called the EDI. And uh, success by the United Way was starting some success by six funding, um, you know, to uh, support communities to work together in early childhood. So that that would be one you know one rail of the train tracks that you know that I went with my superintendent of schools hat on, and we we started the work to say, let's. Let's see how we can do the utmost to support parents and families. And I knew what was in it for the school district right then was that we would be sending more capable and successful uh, children into kindergarten. So that was that was the one rail of the train track. And then uh, just prior to that, I came to the district here in 99. And just prior to that, probably in the 99-2000 school year, I came in February of 99, sort of finishing out a school year. But in the, my discussions in that spring and certainly the 99-2000 school year, I was hearing and seeing um, that... People were very, uh, very concerned about the quality of secondary education mm. by virtue of the fact that only 64% of our kids were graduating every year, and many, many kids were dropping out in grade 10, and many, many kids were were, were, were struggling, you know, really to get a C minus, you know, in a course because of primarily reading and behavioral issues. So those two things were kind of occurring at the outset of when I arrived in Revelstoke. So we started a literacy committee around. How, how are we going to send more capable children to the secondary school? Where do we need to start? And we felt we needed to start um, really at, at kindergarten uh, and, and start growing you know, kids more success at that age. I, call, I always said that, that we, like, we had to go upstream. So mm-hmm. if we've got grade 8 kids who can't read who are going to drop out, we've got to go upstream and find out why they got to grade 8 um, and what can we? What is a system we can do differently? We didn't place any blame. We just said, as a system, we need to do something differently. We've had some of these kids for nine years, and mm-hmm. if they can't read, and if they can't read at high school, let's not be having our high school shoulder all the blame for the fact that they're not graduating. Mm-hmm. You know, hundred percent. 100% of the kids. So we had a literacy initiative that started then and then as this, as a second rail. So I think both of those things were occurring, you know, at the same time. And so as we were making improvements in primary and, and more and more kids were reading, we were also making improvements by working a little bit together uh, as a community before uh, kindergarten mm-hmm. uh, because really early intervention is, is it really is everything. If you can support families and children 
uh, you know, at birth through their first three or four years of life, uh, you're not going to experience any of the issues that we were experiencing early on in our, you know, in our kindergarten classes of, of children with very few social exactly. skills children with high levels of anxiety and emotional you know, concerns, children who were developmentally delayed and not getting any uh, intervention, autistic children, uh, mildly autistic children who weren't getting any intervention, who then were really struggling you know, in a classroom setting. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think we had both. We had we had okay. both of those initiatives going on at, at once. And a lot of that that you mentioned there about the early learning stuff. I mean, it is it is so important. And you know, being a being a new parent, I really understand that, and I I see how integral that is. And and you can really see the gaps in services in your community yeah. when you when you do have kids. You know, before I had kids, I didn't think about any of this stuff, unfortunately. My yeah. wife did, though, because she's always been interested in early childhood education. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, I didn't really have those uh, those glasses on. And as soon as I've had kids, I've really started to look at how spaces in the city are designed for yeah. the little people um, yeah. and really come to appreciate um, services in the community that, that are geared towards families, uh, with differing age groups in those families as well, right? Like not just for babies and moms, but for babies, toddlers, preschoolers and moms, you know, like this kind of blend. And it's, it seems like a lot of the work that you guys have been doing in Revelstoke has led towards, um, in a, in a sense, the, I would say almost this capstone, uh, this capstone, which which is that uh, the neighborhood yeah, learning I, center, which I yeah, know, it, for sure, yeah, for sure. It's a, you know it was a huge opportunity, and and prior to that, what we were after, and and I think we coined this term fairly early. I know mm-hmm. a lot of people use this term now, but we were after being family friendly, mm-hmm. uh, and that and and then rolling from that, you know, we developed our children's charter. I don't know. Have I sent you the children's charter? I don't know. I'm, I'm going to sure. find it and I'm going to send it just while we're talking. Oh yeah, that'd be great, uh, and we can put it in the show notes. Yeah, um, where essentially we we were saying that a community of this size, we should be able to be family friendly, um, and and um, family friendly to us meant that if you had your children downtown and you had a baby, there'd be a place for a man mm. to change a baby, you know. Yeah. There'd be a place downtown where you could use a restroom without going into, a, you know, a business. So there were a whole slew of initiatives where we really felt like we had a ways to go to be family-friendly, and mm-hmm. uh, and we did that. Wow. Yeah, no, that's that's so huge. I, I, I think... Uh, <laughs> I think families around uh, around the province are looking at Rivelstoke and thinking, oh, that might be a... Yeah, if I know. Like I know, it, right? if you if you're um, if you're doing any kind of a research between you know moving to Revelstoke and moving to you know you know community A, um, you know certainly um, it, it makes a it makes a difference. Uh, you know, in terms of if you're looking out for your children, uh, living here would make a difference for your children. There's no doubt. So tell me a bit more about some of the things that you had, um, kind of. Almost, I wouldn't say uh, lobbied for, but it, they it, they sound like they were central motivating factors for you and and the and the community of folks that you were working with. These different organizations that you were partnering with. Um, one was this this notion of family friendly as kind of a a statement that you were going to strive towards, uh, and that you were defining in this very um, 
you know, rigorous kind of way, right? That we're going to be a community that has this kind of level of access for families. Yeah. Um, And the other one, you mentioned the the Human Early Learning Partnership, which is uh, maybe you could kind of elaborate a bit on that work for our listeners um, and and the good work that UBC is doing there about, about, uh, you know, kind of why early learning and why uh, early education is so important seems like those okay. those two pieces are are central to some of your work and if i'm missing missing others uh well no blame being another key one that you mentioned earlier where you know you're looking at the whole system um as somebody who's trying to affect change in a community uh, i think a lot of people sometimes get caught in these in these blame games and and yeah. uh, you know really kind of what good does that do if your ultimate outcome is is some sort of change in material circumstance like if you're actually trying to change something you know you're going to shoot yourself in the foot if you end up you know cutting off a big a big segment of potential partners right you know i think i just i just made a post uh, we've got a significant bear problem in our community right now we've we've uh, euthanized 10 bears in the last three weeks essentially um because it doesn't appear that we're very bear aware any longer and we used to be you know priding ourselves as being a pretty bear aware community and i i, I made a con- there, there was an editorial in the paper and i made a comment I, I don't make a lot of comments because i find that most comments you know are pretty crappy but anyway I, I only make a comment if it's a positive comment and i'll kind of only ever think positive i try mostly to think positive and what i said is that um you know i can't agree more there's no use in looking you know to blame you know, blame doesn't help when you have a problem. And candidly, we have a really large problem. We need to be working together to find solutions. And I think that um, that that really is sort of, um, it, I think it is how most people in our community think about what really are the power of partnerships to find solutions mm. um, as opposed to finger pointing. Because, it, you know, when you're finger pointing, one, one finger's pointing forward and, you know, three are pointing backwards, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone, sh- everyone can be doing something uh, uh, different. So, like, we, I think we tried to build partnerships successfully in our community uh, and with a variety of partners. So, obviously, you know, government partners such as the school district, uh, Interior Health, Public Health, Interior Health Speech and Language, uh, the City of Revelstoke, uh, the Revelstoke Credit Union, uh, the Revelstoke Literacy Act. Uh, so, so, let me stop. Some of those are in the category of like government funded, mm-hmm. you know, folks. So the school district, interior health, uh, the city, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Then, there, then there was another grouping of, of folks that were funded, uh, you know, somehow nonprofits essentially um, uh, who kind of came together and said, let's, uh, let's work together. That would be the Child Care Society, uh, Community Connection Society, uh, local service groups, um, uh, uh, certainly parents or their families, um, uh, options for sexual health, the seniors association. So there's a whole bunch of nonprofits. And then in addition to that, I think we really were very pleased that overarching committees that already existed in our community, 
such as the Early Childhood Development Committee, the City of Revelstoke Social Development Committee, the Literacy Action Committee, uh, the Seniors Association, the, the Revelstoke Youth Advisory Committee. All of those um, advisory committees, they, they all certainly became well aware of what we were trying to do in early learning. And wherever there was like some kind of a synergy, you know, we could sort of count on them, you know, to be, to be helping us. And whether that is us having seniors um, um, do volunteer activities in the one-to-one -one reading program to support our literacy action committee mm. or, or our school children, you know, visiting seniors and, and enriching their lives. We really tried to make those connections like throughout the community that this was, this really was a little bit bigger than just, um, early learning. Mm -hmm. You know, the, um, I'm, I am answering your question. You're going to have to edit this and cut stuff out oh, and move it around. I think, um, <laughs> great. for me, like people say, well, how did you get interested in early learning? Because I, I tell people, honestly, there was a period of time where I could care less. You know, you mentioned that there was a period of time where you really didn't know about early learning for, you know, uh, in your, until you had children. Well, I spent most of my career, you know, certainly the first 25 of 35 years, uh, really only interested in K to 12. You know, these are very important programs. They were programs that we were responsible for. And like we had to roll up our sleeves and work hard in kindergarten. And that was the focus. And we didn't really have any time for anything beyond K uh, uh, earlier or certainly beyond 12 later, you know. Um, but, but I, you know, people say, well, how did you get interested? Well, I had a really aha moment when uh, Clyde Hertzman um, spoke to the British Columbia uh, School Superintendent's Fall Conference. And uh, he had a slide called the sensitive periods in early brain development. And it kind of went up. And um, as each of the different uh, aspects of brain development went up on his slide, so, you know, w what is the peak time uh, for, for vision development, for hearing, for habitual ways of responding, for language, for emotion, you know, uh, for peer social skills? There's a couple more. Uh, I just looked at it aghast that essentially most of these things were pretty much in place before five years of age. There were a few that still developed quite well, you know, four to seven. But so many of them, you'd already missed the boat by five years of age. And mm -hmm. I remember thinking like, oh, my God, what, what could I be doing personally and what could the school district be doing as a as a, as, a, as an organization that has capacity because school districts to me have a lot of capacity mm -hmm. what could we be doing to help our early learning partners and then right away you know success by six was kind of on the heels of helping communities do um, strategic plans and, and that was just an opportunity for me to say okay here's 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 the one thing that I can do I can contribute to this committee yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, certainly the Human Early Learning Partnership have done a good job of talking about, you know, what are the determinants of, uh, you know, uh, uh, of health and uh, what, what do individual children need from within their own families, within their own neighborhoods, you know, within their own community. Mm -hmm. uh, and as a district, we signed on and we did the EDI. We didn't, we were uh, in the first grouping. Uh, we were, I think, piloting in the second uh, grouping. And, you know, we kind of got the initial data as a community that actually we were doing quite well. That's because we actually had a very sophisticated uh, network of 
primary providers in early learning, people mm-hmm. with a lot of experience, a lot of training, and they were reaching lots of so children. What was this EDI? The so the EDI is the Early Development Instrument, uh, kindergarten teachers from around the province. And you, you'll, if you go on the HELP website, there's 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 quite a good explanation. And and basically, uh, they uh, we children's vulnerabilities are rated on uh, five scales of the of the EDI. Um, it's just an instrument. And then there's an overall vulnerability rating. And in the first year, uh, we were we were uh, one of the least vulnerable communities in the province. West Van was the least. Uh, we were the fifth least. Uh, and our vulnerability was 19%. And that was actually quite attractive. There were people with a lot more higher vulnerabilities. And I am going to send you this presentation by Dropbox, because if you have this, you'll have you'll have the individual slides. And uh, you know, maybe I can PDF it and send it to you. Sometimes that works, and I can make it a little... I'll just try that. Um, but, you know, when we went and got the results um, of the EDI that first year, a lot of people were saying, oh, you're so lucky. You've only got 19% of your of your kids vulnerable, you know. Um, but all of us in the room that were involved with early learning, we all looked at each other and said, oh, my God, that's one in five children. Who are they? Where are they? We, sh- we should be doing better than this. You know, mm-hmm. we, we, we sort of took it really as a, like as a call to action, like, you know, we've got to do better. And and that was really kind of between participating together based on Clyde Hertzman's presentation, which really struck me, and then the support by Success by Sex to work and, and, and do some strategic planning. And the first wave of the EDI, that was kind of a real call to action that why can't we have, you know, very, very low levels of vulnerability? And we've ended up, you know, with very low vulnerability very low levels of vulnerability now. We're always under 10%, which is pretty much unheard of. Wow, yeah. Um, and, you know, you can kind of see that there's a lot of different factors that are coming together at the right time in, in your story, yeah. right? And, and, and a, a lot of aha moments that are happening at the right time. I think um, you have to take advantage of opportunities, too. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we had the, we had the advantage... We had the advantage of good information, which was the work that the Human Early Learning Partnership was doing around knowing what are the sensitive periods in early brain development mm-hmm. and and highlighting the long reach of early childhood education. Uh, we had the advantage of being able to do the EDI so that we actually had the data so that we just didn't navel gaze and say, oh, we think generally our kids must be, you know, pretty good, you know. Uh, we, we had real data mm-hmm. uh, and, and we would, and, and, and then we could address that data. Uh, and then I think we had folks who generally generally wanted to do better. The second year, the second wave of the EDI, our vulnerability had uh, we became the least vulnerable in the province. The only committee, the only committee, the only community in the uh, bottom quartile, the first quartile, and our vulnerability was twelve percent. And then in the uh, in the following wave, our vulnerability was six point seven percent. At at that point, Clyde even had to change his presentations because he said it would be if we could just work hard and 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 have 
at most, uh, you know, 12 to 15 percent of our children, you know, vulnerable, you know, that would be a dream. And then, you know, we achieved 10 and 6 and 6.7 percent and uh, 11 percent in the most recent wave. And we're about to get our new data here any day now. Uh, so we kind of proved that by if you really, really worked and, and found and sought out children that were struggling and families that were struggling and provided lots of general services for those folks and personalized services for those folks, um, you could really make huge, uh, huge differences. Yeah, so this, um, this vulnerability aspect, I mean, it's... I'm a little bit familiar with James Heckman's work, and I, I yes, yes. that you that you quote him yes. in a little piece that I've found of you online. Yeah. There. And so, is that where the Human Early Learning Partnership is getting their their notion of vulnerability that these kids are vulnerable to kind of you know basically fall through the cracks as they as as they move through their age and, and into society? Yeah, and I think. Um, I think when you start to look at when children develop and what their needs are, you know, before the age of five, I think mm-hmm. the Human Early Learning Partnership is really committed to doing, mobilizing, you know, uh, communities, governments, service agencies, mobilizing them to action to figure out how we can do, you know, more as uh, as a society to ensure that you know kids have the absolute best start that they possibly can, mm-hmm. you know, to their to their young lives. Yeah, and this is uh, for for my wife Heather, who studies Montessori, which has so much uh, so much to do with those early years. I mean, you can you can technically do Montessori from you know zero all the way up. Um, so a lot of the a lot of the lessons and such that that she's learned, uh, she's been surprised by how Montessori is effectively teaching kind of these what we would consider to be maybe difficult concepts for uh, you know three four five year old to grasp yeah but yeah. they're they're teaching them uh, mathematical concepts and things like this at a very early age of three and four in some instances because when Montessori was looking at uh, uh, children observing how they were behaving and what they were interested in they seemed to be gravitating towards these numerical, quandaries um (laughs) yeah i think kids are kids are far more capable Mm -hmm. than we might have ever thought 20 years ago you know and um i think that's also part of being you know children friendly is mm -hmm. is to recognize what children are capable of at what age they're capable of it and making sure that those experiences are, are there for are there for them so what do you think is, you know, in, in the kind of the big picture, if you were to be able to see your, your vision, you know, extended globally or, or in Canada or wherever, what, what do you think would be the big vision in terms of how we start to work with, with children in a different way? Oh. I know, it's a huge question. There's a few, yeah, there's a few <laughs> things. Um, Um, boy, I think I'm going to say first. I I'd like to see I'd like to see us work with families um, first in a different way. I'd like mm. to I'd like to really I'd like to really see a community or a school system, you know, or a or a whatever, you know, an agency, you know. I'd I'd like to see folks 
that had that really believed that when you support a whole family, uh, when you support mom and when you support dad and maybe some siblings, when you can when you really have wraparound supports for, for a family, that's when you make the most difference. What I've seen as an example, like in, I'll use a literacy example, I've seen that when you help a mom and dad know what to do with a young child by, you know, maybe they attend Mother Goose or they're attending Strong Start or, you know, or, or, or a plethora of other programs that exist. But when they start to cotton on to how you should be, you know, doing poems and rhyming and, you know, uh, reading, you know, with their young children, when you show them what to do for their firstborn, uh, they carry that on for their second and third and fourth born. So I think that we really we really need to support families to give them the knowledge and the skills that they need to support their own children. Mm-hmm. Um, when you do that, you're already going to alleviate many, many, many problems because many, many things that make for a good situation for a child are things that have to change or be in place in the home 24-7. Yeah. So if you can't figure out how to support other things with families, you know, you can have an hour of intervention for a, for a child, you know, early intervention, early behavior intervention support. Um, and for that hour, the child is getting great, you know, services and learning and being better behaved and uh, uh, learning how to, you know, be socially responsible. But once that therapist leaves that setting, it probably isn't even in the home. It's probably, you know, in a, in a clinic of some sort. But once once that once the therapist, you know, once the therapy session's done, that child then is going to go home to whatever their circumstances are. Mm-hmm. If we can make those circumstances the richest and the most po- and the most positive possible, we're going to avoid lots more therapy needed mm-hmm. because you know uh, the home environment itself will be um, will be adequate you know, for, for that child to, to grow and learn. I, I think that um, poverty here is, is, it is a huge, it is a huge issue. Uh, part of what our community has done in the last little while, a recent uh, initiative is we've done, uh, our literacy committee has done quite a bit of work on financial literacy. We're trying to help people understand, um, you know, what you can do with your money, how you can make your money go further, you know, uh, you know how, how, how you can save, how you can shop smarter. Um, I mean, it's not a panacea. So I think that, you know, I think that poverty is something that you have some limitations in supporting your families with. Um, and that's you, you, your original question was, you know, where, what, what maybe we could be doing. You're after a community of folks who are doing whatever they're doing in early learning to be um, relationship-based so that there's a relationship with a mom and a relationship with a dad and a relationship with their children mm-hmm. that are conducive to people w- being willing to accept some services. Uh, and uh, I think that... that the, the, the very best of folks that work in early learning, you know, whether you're a child care provider or you're an early learning coordinator for your community or you're the child care resource and referral um, coordinator or you're a um, uh, uh, infant and 
childhood development consultant. Um, the very the very best of those folks have those skills where um, they are approachable and they can form a relationship with a family who is struggling. And we can de um, destigmatize, um, you know, services. Mm-hmm. Yes, destigmatizing We're, services. That's a really, really. We've uh, we've got a um, we've got an initiative now of our early childhood development uh, committee that we're really quite proud of. We're calling it uh, the Universal Offer for the ASQ. So the ASQ is a um, uh, a survey that uh, uh, Interior Health in our community uses at six months of age uh, to kind of. Um, uh, give us a benchmark as to how a child is developing. Mm. Um, what and so uh, you, you might have had that in Victoria for your. Um, uh, I think we did, yeah. Yeah, but by, by the public health nurse at six mm-hmm. months of age. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm just gonna. I gotta. I gotta look up what it is. I. I. I I'm getting bad with acronyms. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know I've gotten I've gotten better with them because of being in government. I know, and you see, and I was great with them. I knew them all, but now that I'm retired, yeah, um, what's the use, right? <laughs> yeah, ages, ages, and stages. Geez, mm. that's so simple. So, so the public health does ages and stages at six months, and ideally, they can they flag every six month old, and and right away we can get a hint that maybe the child isn't developing uh, as we would expect. And what we've done in our communities, we've made a universal offer for 18 months and 36 months, where we are really encouraging all of our child care providers or strong start facilitators, uh, people that work in home uh, child care settings to make a uni- to, to make an offer universally for every parent uh, to do an ASQ at 18 months and do it again at 36 months. So what we're hoping there is, you know, that's our, that's our method of ensuring that there aren't children falling through the cracks. Mm-hmm. And I also think because we're doing the ASQ universally, you know, I'm not looking at your little boy and saying, well, he's obviously normal. You know, I've talked to him for five minutes. I could, I would know that. I'm saying, Stefan, you should still do the ASQ. So everyone's doing the ASQ. So you, you don't know that you've been offered the ASQ because somebody already thinks there's an issue. You're just doing it, and everybody's right. doing it. And I think that that has destigmatized the fact that, you know, uh, like we say, children need regular checkups too. You go out and, you, you know, you pull the dipstick out of your engine, you know, once in a while, mm-hmm. and you look to see if there's any oil in there. Uh, not because you think that there isn't any, but just because you should know. And I think that's what we're, we're trying to do with the ASQ. And I think that that also has kind of destigmatized uh, talking about the worries that you have for your child. And if parents ha- can just talk about, you know, the worries that they have for their child. And if a parent were just, it just says, I think maybe my child is watching too much TV. You know, well, we've got, you know, a little bit of an initiative in our community called Screen Smart to get good information out to parents as to, you know, how much is enough and how much is too much. Mm-hmm. Try not to, you know... Um, uh, seriously, uh, we have so many resources in our community. I can't even name them all in a five-hour call, let alone a two-hour call. Well, I'll have to put some stuff together and just send you. But but if if you can destigmatize the relationships of your uh, children's uh, 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 of, of children's 
care providers and health providers and uh, mental health providers, then you, you will have uptake and people will seek advice and get help and changes will be made and your children will be healthy. And so that I, I love that concept of destigmatizing relationships with service providers, and it sounds like you know that that that's really done your community well in terms. It of has, and you know, people people, people are on a first name basis. So mm-hmm. if we if we stumble across somebody at three years of age that we think probably seems to be speech delayed, the whoever has a relationship with that family, uh, and and whoever has the best relationship with that family would say. Stefan, I'd really like he. I'd really like to suggest that you bring your son uh, to Strong Start next week. The uh, Carolyn, our speech and language pathologist, uh, attends Strong Start on that day, and you know she'd spend a little time with your son and uh, offer some insights as to you know perhaps things that uh, you you might want to uh, consider in the next six months as he's developing more uh, you know speech. Well, then maybe you will go to Strong Start, and maybe you will have Carolyn, the speech and language pathologist, spend five minutes with your son, you know, at the at the water table, mm-hmm. and and that will be basically the referral and the and the and the assessment. And and Carolyn would say, no, there's not really too much problem here, but I think maybe just a little bit of work on the S sound would be great. Can probably provide you with some resources. Maybe you'll go back and you'll see her, you know, in in the formal you know speech and language you know uh, setting that she offers in our neighborhood learning center. Um, but that doesn't have a lot of stigma when mm-hmm. you're having somebody uh, provide you with that kind of advice in that manner. That's think, what that's what we're, that's what we're after. And I think there's another element too that I'm hearing all of this that that's really um, interesting for for kind of the working together themes around using design thinking and social innovation and all this kind of stuff. So in in the design thinking world, you know, a lot of um, a lot of what they do uh, is they try to kind of design from actual human behaviors and try to empathize with the needs of the user or the customer or whoever. And you mentioned that there's so many resources in your community that you couldn't even count them all in a five-hour call. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I think that, that illustrates kind of the work that you guys have done uh, building up the services in your community through the partnerships and through the organizations. And over time, it sounds like you guys have done a lot of listening to, uh, yes, to folks definitely. and trying to find out what their, what their actual needs are. I'm wondering if you can maybe talk a little bit about that, maybe tell us some stories around what you guys did to to empathize with um, families and what they needed. Yeah, um, every, every time we do a significant uh, revision of our strategic plan, and actually a person that you would want to talk w- w- with in our community more so than me would be our early childhood development uh, coordinator and our early years coordinator, Tracy Spanier. But every, every time we do a, um, uh, a strategic plan update, we do a really um, thorough uh, survey of our communities. So we use SurveyMonkey. We do, uh, you know, uh, uh, little mini forums. Uh, we do. We, we we gather data all kinds of ways. So a couple of things that we've addressed, uh, you know, in the last little while. Uh, we um, we've tried to make our programs more dad friendly. We did. We found out oh, a few years ago that a lot of dads felt that they didn't. They weren't really all that comfortable uh, coming to programs. They were very female dominated, uh, both in terms of I think the providers and the participants. And so we really had an emphasis, you know, in our planning to make uh, you know programs more dad friendly. You know, we've got a wonderful Mother Goose program 
here. Most communities do, I'm, I'm sure. You know, well, we made a father goose. Well, that wasn't really probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we probably could have had a better name. But we really, we really tried to cater uh, to having dads, you know, uh, and we have a lot of dads on shift work, so they're actually available during the day, come to our programs, and we've been relatively successful. So that was a re- that was an area where we really felt we needed to do better. Um, we've, we felt that we needed to do better uh, through some surveying on offering uh, uh, some key programs um, outside of, you know, the hours that we were doing it. So for Strong Start, as an, as an example, people felt that uh, the times didn't suit the daytime, the day, the day times, and the that uh, you know we needed either late afternoon or even an early uh, or even an evening session, and we needed Saturday. So we developed a partnership with the Child Care Society, uh, and we now offer uh, a, a strong start offering uh, through winter uh, for every every Saturday. Wow! Uh, for, for people to come that otherwise uh, wouldn't be able to come because they're working. So I think the timing of your programs, I think the location of our programs has come under recent scrutiny, and uh, both the child care society and our uh, one of our key um, providers in our community community connections have looked at doing uh, you know some outreach programs uh, be it you know play in the park you know get the programs out of a building altogether you know put it in a park where it's really accessible it's been a long-standing uh, success and community connections now is providing uh, some of their programs uh, in 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 remote remote neighborhoods from where their key building is where they, where they would other, otherwise offer their programs uh, uh, so we got a few programs happening in some of our schools and in neighborhoods that are, you know, not quite, you know, in, in the downtown centralized core. Certainly not where our neighborhood learning center is, and those are also very popular. The other thing that I think we've said to ourselves is, if you run a program and only five people show up. And those are five people that couldn't have got to that program, you know, on the normal day. That's a success. And, you know, sometimes stats are your own worst enemy. Like if you want to run a program and if you need 20 people to think that you're a success, the minute you do one on an outreach basis in a small, you know, in a small neighborhood or, you know, on a Saturday or in an evening or in an afternoon, you're going to have fewer numbers. But you're going to have the numbers of people that would, you wouldn't have attended that program at all. So I think we've been quite smart about saying, okay, so two people came to Strong Start that afternoon. There were two people that really needed to come. They had lots of attention by the Strong Start facilitator. It was really good for those two children. And it's two children. It's it's a positive. It's not like, oh, my God, where were the 18 that didn't show up because we were hoping for 20? No. Mm-hmm. Two, two showed up and got services that they've never had before and formed a relationship with the Strong Start facilitator uh, that um, maybe will cause them to be more comfortable coming to the program uh, when it's regularly offered. Mm-hmm. So I think I think you have to um, I think you have to have those discussions within your community where you're saying if it all is about personalizing services for the families and children that are most needing services, then you, sometimes your numbers are going to be smaller. Sometimes your locations have to change, and um, sometimes you have to change the program a little bit to suit that family and that child's circumstances. That's great. So, Anne, I know that we're we've been talking now for about an hour, but I want to wrap it up with a with a question, um, kind of for for my listeners uh, who are, you know, interested in in creating social change and and creating, yeah. um, you know, positive impact in their community. 
what would you say from from the work that you've done in Revelstoke and and throughout your career uh, is kind of the central uh-huh. lesson that you've that you've gotten from all of this work with partnership building and and kind of you know holding these different uh-huh. groups together around uh-huh. around some really great goals that you've accomplished um, locate all the people that you need to get into the room and, and try to get them into the room don't don't be afraid of locating uh, or naming folks that should be there that aren't and figure out a way of getting them included be really transparent in what you're trying to accomplish with in terms of your goals hmm. um, uh, leave your egos at the door for those of us that had big fancy titles with big fancy salaries um, um, talk about uh, talk about the elephant in the room, whatever your elephant may be. So if you've got a lot of programs that seem to be occurring on the very same day in the very same time period, get that on the table and, mm-hmm. and, and look for ways to, to make that change. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are no sacred cows. So if you've got a program that you've been doing for years and you love it and you've got a wonderful person running your program, uh, but you realize it isn't quite the, the type of program that you need for the children that you're trying to serve, be prepared to you know, make those changes to that program and uh, adequately survey. Uh, and I don't mean a survey like in a paper survey, whatever you're using for survey, uh, you know, focus groups, uh, you know, whatever. But adequately survey uh, your um, parents to find out what it is they need. Mm-hmm. Listen, um, listen to the people listen, that you're listen, trying to serve. Listen to the people. Yeah. Um, when you're when you're working together, get everything that's a burning issue out on the table in the room. Uh, lose the parking lot conversations and the pre-emails and the post-emails to a meeting. Um, uh, we've been we generally are pretty successful at that, but you've always got to be vigilant. Where you know, go to go to a meeting, say what's on your mind. Uh, uh, be polite and but you know but get out what your concern is don't go to a meeting and give lip service to what's being said and then whip out into the parking lot and find the one person that you think you can trust and say oh was that ever an awful meeting they never dealt with this they never dealt with that this is how I really feel don't right. do that lose the, lose the parking lot interesting um, yeah. um, and um I, like I think that. you also. That's good. That's, that's, that's yeah. That's that's a huge that's a that's a huge one for everything, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and have a plan. I think do the work necessary to have. You know, like we've got a really good you know strategic plan. We keep it current. Um, have a plan, and I guess the the best advice is it, it it is it does it does take some time and it does take some work. So make sure that. You're contributing something so that you've got the capacity to do the work. If if you if you need a you know if you need a coordinator for for your committee or for your group, uh, and if they can't do it off the side of their desk, you know, then figure out a way that you spend a few dollars on getting some coordination. If you mm-hmm. if you if you need minutes recorded and somebody can do it off the side of your desk. Uh, that's great, but if you can't, you know, then find a way of getting those um, those key elements of any endeavor under control. I mean, you need coordination. You need, you know, you need minutes. You need a little bit of marketing. You no, know, you, know, you need communication. Mm-hmm. Figure out how you're going to get that stuff done, so that you actually are getting stuff done in between meetings. Because nobody wants to go to a meeting where you're talking about the same thing month in, month out, nine months later. You're still talking about doing something that somebody said needed to be done in the first month. If you're making no progress from month to month 
no one will want to stay, uh, you know, working in that endeavor on that committee. You know, mm. it, it'll just be a big waste of time. So commit to making some progress. And if even if it's a small amount of progress, just make some kind of progress because that actually, I think, really um, uh, stimulates people to do more. Well, as you said, right, as soon as people started to see those literacy rates increase, you know, they said, oh, we can, we can make 90%. Let's do it. Exactly. And, yeah. And, you know, that's, that's great. No, and yeah. th- this is, this has been really great. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm so, uh, so grateful that you took the time to kind of. Well, my pleasure, you. my pleasure. And I hope, uh, I hope if I'm in Victoria, I can look you up and, and meet you face to face. So if I, I'm down, in, I'm down in Victoria, maybe once every couple of years, but you, but you never know. And if I'll put you on my list of folks that if I'm in Victoria, I'll at least walk by your office and give you a wave. Yeah, no, that would be great. And okay. Well, thanks. This has been, this has been really pleasant. I, I hear my, I, my husband beginning to hammer outside. So maybe we're at stage two of the repair and I get to hold a board. Awesome. <laughs> okay, thanks, Stefan. Okay, thanks, Anne. Okay, yeah, bye-bye. bye-bye. Nice meeting you. In 2013, Ann Cooper retired as superintendent of schools for school district number 19 in Revelstoke. Previously, she was superintendent of schools in Fort Nelson. Active in her community, she is a member of the Human Early Partnership Middle Years Development Instrument Advisory Committee. She's a founding member of the Revelstoke Social Development Committee the Revelstoke Early Childhood Development Committee, and the Screen Smart Committee. Anne Cooper received the British Columbia School Superintendents Association Distinguished Service Award in 2006 and was twice the recipient of the Premier's Award for Excellence. In February 2013, she was the recipient of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal, recognizing her as one of the outstanding educational leaders in British Columbia. You can find the resources mentioned during this episode at togetherworking.com slash the working together podcast, all one word. And if you'd like to receive the weekly working together review, where I share interesting finds and actionable insights about teamwork, facilitation skills, social innovation, cooperatives, behavioral economics, strategy, political theory, and a whole bunch of other stuff, you can sign up at togetherworking.com.